Welcome to The Sword of the Trial, a podcast of Founders Ministries. Founders Ministries exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm delighted today to be joined in the studio by my old friend, Mark Devine. Mark, welcome to The Sword of the Trial. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. So you've come all the way from Birmingham, Alabama, down to Southwest Florida. That's right. And how long have you been in Birmingham teaching at Beeson Divinity School? I came in 2008, and so I'm completing my 14th year there now. Wonderful. Well, we're glad to have you. Look forward to having a conversation with Mark about a project that he's working on for Founders. He's got a new book that he's uh, developing and, and writing, and we look forward to releasing that, God willing, next year. And speaking of new books, let me mention James Renahan, Jim Renahan's new book, For the Vindication of the Truth. This is an exposition of the First Baptist London Confession of Faith, and there's nothing else like it uh, out there. We've worked pretty long and hard trying to get it available to you. You know, the supply chain issues that we've run into and the paper shortages and all of that. But this book is now shipping. And if you don't have a copy of it, let me encourage you to get a copy of the reviews that we're getting back already. Uh, the book's only been out a week or so. Uh, at the time we're recording this, people are wonderfully encouraged by it. Jim's working on a second project for us as well that will be an exposition of the second London Baptist Confession of Faith. So uh, if you think of it, pray for him, pray for us as we look forward to getting that out, hopefully in early 2023. Speaking of 2023, we have the National Founders Conference scheduled here in January 2023. It'll be on the doctrine of man. What is man? I don't know of anything that's more current and relevant for us to think about as Christians right now than what does it mean to be human uh, in this culturally um, difficult time when all of that's being reimagined and redefined. Joel Beakey will be here with us for that, and uh, Paul Washer will be here, Vody Balkum will be here, and there'll be others as well. So go online to founders.org, and you can find out all the information you need about that. Well, Mark, I was trying to remember earlier uh, today when you first uh, arrived here in town, when you and I first met, and I think it was at a Founders Conference. I think it was in Birmingham. Right. Uh, I was in attendance at all of those Founders Conferences that met in Birmingham uh, in the 80s, and that's that's when we met. Yeah, so it was way back then, and you have since, man, I mean, you, you've been a, a missionary, Right, and you Thank served you at a different institution. So give us give us just kind of a brief rundown of uh, your story, man. Even how you came to Christ, and then how you got involved in ministry. Well, I was I was raised in South Carolina in a blue collar family, and uh, I was taken to a Southern Baptist church in my mother's womb, and um, was raised uh, there, um, always in church. Uh, but uh, as a teenager, I fell into drug use, and uh, that, that led down a very, very bad path. I became an intravenous uh, drug user. I dropped out of church, and um, I lost my mother when I was 16 and a half, back when I had halves, and uh, she was just 36 years old, and that precipitated a crisis in my life and in my family's life and had kind of a Damascus Road turnaround, and... Um, uh, ended up uh, back in church and uh, eventually pursued a degree in electrical engineering and uh, that I eventually realized was an attempt not to go into the ministry that failed uh, because God thinks he's God and he just has to have his way on everything. And so when I graduated from Clemson uh, in engineering, I ended up uh, heading to Southern Seminary and uh, expected to be a foreign missionary. That happened years down the road, but um, I ended up pastoring churches and eventually uh, being hired to teach 
theology and historical theology and church history at Midwestern Seminary. Uh, later spent uh, a tour in uh, Bangkok, Thailand as a missionary with the International Mission Board, came back to Midwestern, taught several years uh, before I came to Beeson. And in the meantime, uh, I've kind of become a serial interim pastor. So mm. if a church is without a pastor, you better watch out because I'm, <laughs> I'm out there. And some of those have morphed into uh, bivocational uh, pastorates, and uh, I've been able to help some uh, difficult churches with difficult times. Uh, published a, a book, Replant, uh, with Darren Patrick, one of my uh, students, uh, replanting a church in downtown Kansas City. And so uh, I've been in academic life, but I've also always had one foot very firmly planted in local churches and trying to, to help churches in that very special time between uh, pastors. Yeah. Well, that's, that's a wonderful story of God's grace. Isn't it marvelous to look back and you just can see more clearly than you ever did when you're living through it, how God wove things together? Uh, coming from a blue-collar background, I would never have thought I would be paid to, to talk, to make sentences. <laughs> I was already doing that. Yeah. And so uh, yeah. uh, it's been a wonderful thing, and I, I, uh, I'm very grateful to the Lord for calling me to this very special work. Yeah. Well, I have appreciated your articles these last several years, especially as you've tried to make sense personally of what's going on in the culture, what's going on in the evangelical world, and more specifically, what's going on in the Southern Baptist Convention. And God's blessed those articles. Uh, You've helped a lot of people to get clarity in your own assessments of where things are, how we got here, and where things are going. And through that, you and I talked, and uh, you've come up with a book idea that you're now working on that's um, kind of like all of those things mixed into one. You know, what, what happened to get us to where we are, and what is this mess, and how, how are we to assess it? So tell us a little bit about that book project. What led you to, uh, to dive in and start writing it? Well, uh, at the end of 2014, uh, one of my sons, my older son, uh, he knows that I'm reformed in my thinking, and uh, he uh, also knows that I have a special interest in uh, issues related to race. And he said, well, you should uh, get to know this preacher, Vody Balkum. And I had to do a double take and spell it, you know, Vody mm. Balkum and so forth. And so I began to uh, listen to some of uh, what I could online, his preaching, and look at some of the things he had written. And I was so uh, thrilled. Uh, he has a great story as well, mm. and the way the Lord has worked in his life. And um, I actually uh, told Vody that uh, if I had sat down and just typed in uh, what the Southern Baptist needs in terms of helping us through the cultural challenges that we're facing right now and uh, how to protect the gospel in the midst of it. I don't think I could have done any better than, than Vody uh, Balkum. Uh, but not long after I discovered Vody, I also discovered that he once was uh, very um, almost ubiquitous in Southern Baptist life, in uh, the life of the Reformed resurgence that we think of that is associated with Tim Keller and the Gospel Coalition uh, at, the, at the conferences that they do, but that all of a sudden he just disappeared and uh, eventually realized, using uh, the parlance that we have today, you know, he had been canceled. And uh, that really upset me. And, uh, and again, using the parlance of the day, it, uh, it, it kind of triggered me. This is the person I want us to be hearing. Uh, why are we only hearing from people who are saying things very different from what uh, he is saying about the culture and about race? 
eventually discovered that he had discovered critical theory and critical race theory years before anyone was speaking about it and knew a great deal about it. And so, but there was one other trigger that that sort of led to just um, kind of a passion to a compulsion really to say something about what was happening was when uh, Russell Moore said that if you voted for Donald Trump, then, you know, you would have to deny your faith uh, Mm -hmm. to do that. And so, Donald Trump is he poses unique challenges for I think for any Christian, especially at that time when he was running in 2016. But those two things came together, and I began to hear very negative things and I think inaccurate things said about conservative evangelicals and and Baptists. And so I I just began to ask the question, what has happened? What is going on? Uh, and so I began for the first time in my life really to do research on people who are living, uh, who are my heroes in the, in the Reformed evangelical world and in the Southern Baptist world. And the more I learned, then the more I felt compelled that I needed to say something mm. about what I was learning. Mm. Wonderful. Fascinating. Well, was it that uh, Russell Moore statement? Was that your aha moment that something's amiss in the SBC? Or were there other things that turned was, lights on for it you? It was really the combination of, of these things. Because with, with Vody, um, what I saw was something that I'd looked for, and that is um, a per, an African-American who was conservative theologically and who, whose views were not shaped by the progressive left. Mm-hmm. And so I was raised, uh, you know, I was raised to vote as a liberal Democrat, and I sort of bought into a kind of uh, victimhood narrative and so forth. But uh, beginning in the late 70s, I began to encounter people like uh, Thomas Sowell and his writings and uh, Shelby Steele, and then later some younger uh, voices like Glenn Lowry and John McCorder and, and some others. And uh, I began to really feel very concerned that, that what was happening in the black community and increasingly in many communities is to really encourage people to take on a victim kind of view of themselves. And it leads to a kind of infantilization uh, mm. in the culture uh, and then catastrophizing any kind of slight that a person feels. And so this part of it was this race thing. And so when I saw that, oh, if you don't adopt the progressive view of how race is to be understood, then you're, you're not going to be, you're not going to have a voice in my convention. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at Vody, such a spectacular talent, I think we have to say. And, and so that, that could not but be disturbing uh, to me. And I saw these, all of this call for, we need a lot of conversation about race, but then I realized, are they real conversations if you've decided ahead of time, well, we can only hear yeah. African Americans who tow one line. And then with the Russell Moore statement, what I saw was a be- the beginning of learning of this caricature that is being uh, put forward about conservative uh, Southern Baptists. Now, I've been immersed with these conservative Southern Baptists. I am a deplorable, and so no one has to teach me about them. I'm in their churches. I'm an interim pastor. I'm supply preaching. I'm, I've been with these people. I know who they are. And this caricature of them as haters, caricature of them who've made no progress on race, uh, this caricature of, of them uh, who are attached to politics in an idolatrous way, it didn't ring true. 
And yet I'm, t- I'm being told that by those that the people they're talking about, they're paying their salaries. Mm-hmm. And then they're telling them what they are. And I'm looking at these people and saying, that's not what I see here. And so uh, I saw this disconnect between our leadership and what I thought I could see right before my eyes. And then when I began to see that in the branding and the platforming and the messaging of uh, the Reformed movement and of some of the Southern Baptist entity heads uh, was really seemed to be driven more by the culture than by the theology that we were told was really the bond between us. Mm -hmm. And uh, these were the primary issues. These were the essentials, and we have unity there. But instead, other issues that were not the essentials, those seem to be used as litmus test on who gets in the conversation and who does not. And the more I began to see this, the more disturbed uh, I became uh, because I, I could see it dividing us in ways that these same leaders said we shouldn't be divided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a wonderful insight, and oftentimes it's lost in the smoke and mirrors of, of all the rhetoric that is uh, foisted upon us. Um, two movements in the broader evangelical world, but specifically in the SBC, conservative resurgence and return to a full-throated affirmation of the authority and inerrancy of Scripture. And then the Young Restless Reform Movement, as Colin Hansen designated it in that uh, Christianity Today article that became a book as he fleshed it out. Um, You have lived through both of those. In some ways, you might even say you benefited from both of those. How do you you see your relationship to those movements, what it was maybe and what it is? One of the more disturbing components of my trajectory here is that I became reformed in my thinking before the Young, Restless, and Reform movement arose. But when it did, uh, I couldn't have been uh, happier about it. I, I, I see myself as one of a, the early cheerleaders for the movement. I wrote uh, in defense of the movement against critics who I believe now put their finger mm-hmm. on problems long before I saw them, and I didn't want to see them. Um, surely one of the most significant uh, uh, aspects of the Southern Baptist Convention, the Southern Baptist Movement, uh, to account for its success is its passion for evangelism and missions and church planting. And what I saw were people who shared my theology and had this passion, not just for church planting, but for church planting in in very hard places. I was a missionary in Thailand, and Thailand is known as one of the most resistant places on earth uh, to the gospel. Uh, This might not be known by people, but Buddhism generally is very, very resistant. Uh, but Chinese Buddhism is not as resistant. And if you go into a Chinese restaurant and you see the Buddha, the Buddha's fat and happy. Well, those are liberal Buddhists. If you go to Southeast Asia, the Buddhas are sleek uh, and they're, they're in repose. And those are the really strong Buddhists. That's what they have in Thailand. And so uh, they're very resistant to, to Christianity. And so are cities. Cities are uniquely resistant uh, to the gospel. And we know that revivals can happen there. There was a great revival in New York City. But uh, they're very resistant. And I was so uh, proud and admiring of these leaders, Tim Keller, uh, uh, Darren Patrick in St. Louis, and 
all across the board. And so I really jumped in, you know, uh, feet first and Mm -hmm. even worked with Darren Patrick, who was the longtime uh, vice president of Acts 29 and pastor of the megachurch The Journey in St. Louis, my former student. And we replanted a church uh, in Midtown, uh, Kansas City. And so I embraced the movement. I loved the movement. Uh, and uh, defended it against against critics, and so it has been very, um, very personally um, disappointment. And I feel like I'm a person who's kind of uh, at first in malaise about it. How how could something go so wrong that I believed was so right? Mm-hmm. And when others tried to warn me about it, I said, No, 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 you're misunderstanding. And would go down the checklist of why th- things are all right, things are fine. Mm-hmm. You know, some have looked at the Young Restless Reform Movement and say that it was just the latest iteration of old-line Protestant liberalism. I mean, is that your take? How do you assess that? Well, as the years have gone by, that question has become more and more interesting to me. I, uh, in my Ph.D. studies, I studied Protestant liberalism, and there's certainly one way in which they are not like Protestant liberals at all, and that's because of their theology. The original Protestant liberals rejected their theology. They admitted that they come to the Bible with something that they understand about what can modern man believe and not believe. What can modern man find relevant and what can they not find relevant? And so they scrapped their confessions of faith and wrote new confessions of faith that they believed modern men and women could stomach. They admitted that when they come to the Bible, they bring that that norm, if mm. you will, on what modern man can hear and find relevant. And then they separate wheat from chaff and use what the Bible has in it that can scratch the itches, if you will, and not offend uh, modern men and women. So that's that's kind of a manly, robust, dogmatic, uh, you can respect it kind of marine. Uh, Protestant liberalism. But in evangelical life, we've seen a different pattern. And the Young, Restless, and Reform movement falls into that pattern. The first great iteration of this pattern was in the seeker movement and the church growth movement. These were evangelicals, and they kept their conservative, orthodox confessions of faith. But they also used survey data to discern the 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 sensibilities, the proclivities, antipathies, the felt needs of the target populations that they wanted to reach, and it was suburban populations. And they used that data to inform uh, what the the population they want to reach would encounter first. So in the the literature that they would send out in webs in the webs on the websites that they would put up, what they would encounter when they first entered the doors of the church, and they kept their conservative uh, uh, confessions of faith. But over time, it turned out that this branding and initial messaging and platforming, where you bring kind of an exquisite sensitivity to what you believe, will turn off those who you want to reach. Uh, or, or to make sure you have uh, a ready answer that's very practical, immediately practical, to questions that they're asking. Over time, it turned out that the theological part that they meant to do later wasn't happening. Mm-hmm. We remember the famous uh, 
study that Bill Hybels did at his church, and he, it showed that we've got a big front door, but we've got a big back door, and the indices that we use to measure whether people are becoming more Christian, more deeply discipled, he said, we're not uh, doing that. The next iteration targeting suburbanites was the purpose-driven life movement. And that was very interesting to me because uh, Paul Tillich, a liberal theologian, had said that at any given time in history, there's some burning existential question that, that people need to have answered. And the, we must use a method of correlation. We have, must correlate that deep question with an answer from the Bible. And he said, ancient man is interested in an answer to death. He's freaked out by the fact that he's going to die. And so we must have an answer to death. Well, the answer is resurrection. Medieval man is deeply concerned about guilt, with Martin Luther being the quintessential example. And so we go to the Bible looking for an answer to that question. And the uh, answer is forgiveness. But modern men and women, Tillich said, are interested in meaning. They want to know what their lives mean, the purpose-driven life. And so it's a, sort of a, an apologetic versus a dogmatic way of, of trying to reach populations. And I'm not sure that that is always wrong in every instance, but it is the pattern. Mm-hmm. Now, this, the Young Restless and Reform Movement, they have a target population too. And it's what I call blue communities. And these are... Uh, university-trained, Democrat-voting populations in cities and in blue enclaves that are clustered across the Fruited Plain. And so they are very interested in reaching them with the gospel. And so what we're seeing now is that their branding and their uh, platforming and their messaging is geared towards not offending that population. And so conservatives who vote uh, Republican for whatever reason, I've done some study, and they're really, you know, conservatives, who, Christians who vote Republican, they're really not single-issue voters. Uh, those on the other side want that to be true because then they can contrast it to the more supposedly more sophisticated multi-issue voting. But actually, when you survey conservative Christians, they have a whole array of issues, and abortion, you know, is one of them. But so those populations are tarred as idolatrous, which I don't find to be the case. But the other side is not tarred as being idolatrous. Uh, on the question of abortion, uh, the adjustments there, have all, they're always in one direction on these issues. And so, yes, pro-life, uh, anti-abortion, but completely pro-life. And so that allows a person to continue to vote Democrat and say, well, we just care about people also after uh, they're born, mm-hmm. but I really haven't seen a move to run out and murder <laughs> living adults. I, if that happens, I don't know how shocked I would be, but uh, that, that is really not what is happening. But I see a pattern here in which that passion to reach people that attracted me to the movement uh, has led to I don't a bracketing, a marginalizing, a uh, tail wagging the dog sort of situation with the branding and the platforming and the messaging. And what that led to was a cancel culture. We simply find that voices that will not cater to those blue communities on an array of issues, 
that are then put in the category of gospel issues. Those voices have to be shut out. And so uh, the, the theology that was supposed to bond us, this deep, fully-orbed, reformed theology that was supposed to be the basis of our staying together and then allow for diversity mm-hmm. on non-essentials, thorny issues that it's hard to go to the Bible and just get an answer about politics or this this or that, the environment, board, national borders, and things like that. There we're going to have diversity. But it turned out that the success of the movement made it so so difficult to allow these other voices. And so I don't get to hear Vody Balkum's theology. No one's saying his theology is unorthodox, but I don't get to hear him anymore. Uh, he, he refused to embrace the racist... Uh, reading of the Michael Brown situation, which has borne out that he's right about that, but we don't get to hear him. Uh, Carol Swain makes her way to Nashville and is thwarted from speaking uh, to the co- to the convention. Uh, Wayne Grudem, whose systematic theology is one of the the best selling one volumes in history, certainly over the last quarter century, writes a massive tome about Christians and politics. Uh, that is loaded with hundreds of, of, of biblical references. And yet, I'm listening to people, you know, I, I have never heard of tell me how to think about politics. And yet, he shares our theology, and he's not at the table. And so, the more I learned, and the more I faced this cancel culture, the more I just couldn't approve of it and couldn't believe that most of the, those who pay the bills in the Southern Baptist Convention... Uh, 80-plus percent who voted for Trump would approve of that, Mm -hmm. and that at least they ought to, if we could, be made aware that this is the case. Yeah, you know, what you've described is uh, what I had clarified for me when I read David Wells' book, No Place for Truth, that it's not that we have rejected the theology. We've just taken theology from the center, and we've moved it over to the edge. And that has helped me to understand some of the conversations I've had with evangelical leaders over the last five years or so when I'd say, but how, how can you hire this person? How can you let this person teach on your faculty? And I get the answer, well, Tom, she signed the Baptist Faith and Message, or they, they've signed the Chicago Statement on there. And it's like, okay, they've signed it, but look what they're advocating that is completely inconsistent with that. And it's like, no, you're not supposed to talk about that. We're, we're living within the boundaries of these confessions that we all say we hold to, and these other things are incidental. But it's those incidental things that become then the norm by which That's the folks right. like you described are canceled. It's the, it's the, gate, it's the gatekeeping. And, you know, um, when I look back on my enthusiasm for the movement, uh, I'm still not able to totally let it go. I still am not willing to just chastise myself for, for not seeing it. Because I look back and I think that I do want to go into the cities. But what I do think a takeaway might be that um, we already see it with the seeker movement, that formal and even sincere affirmation of a fully orbed doctrinal statement albeit necessary, it is not sufficient to protect the clear message of the gospel, and it's not sufficient to keep that, that body of beliefs as the foundation for 
communal bonds and ministry partnership among people. Yeah. If you allow some other, what uh, uh, term I learned from Carl Bart, an alien norm to come in. And the alien norm he was talking about were the sensibilities of modern man as discerned by those who were trying to salvage Christianity in the face of an Enlightenment critique that was undermining you know, the very authority of Scripture. And I think when you look at the Young, Restless, and Reform movement, it's particularly disturbing what has happened because they said, and this is one of the, re- it's one of the many reasons that I embraced them so easily and so quickly, uh, they said, we saw the mistake that was made by the seeker movement. We mm-hmm. saw the mistakes made there. And that's not going to be us. And even some of their earlier early moves reflect that they meant it because many of them joined in the emerging church uh, conversation and then backed away because they said doctrine is what defines us, these core doctrines. And so even those who, who meant to avoid the mistake of allowing the decentering of these doctrines and allowing some other alien norm to come in uh, and shape our message, it has happened. Mm-hmm. And the proof is, is that those who were part of the movement and were welcomed and share that theology are not allowed to have their voices heard. And I think it's very important to say their views about race, like Vody's views about, Vody Balkan's views about race and how it ought to be understood. Carol Swain's views about race and how it ought to be understood, how Christians should relate to the political realm that we get from Grudem, uh, the, the challenges that, that Thomas Sowell has laid out about how, how, how much harm is done by this victim status and identity politics. Mm-hmm. These views are not refuted. Right. They're simply ignored. Yeah, they're canceled canceled. It is an insidious issue. And if you don't understand it, you're not in a position to assess it the way you just have, man, you you just feel like, maybe I'm crazy because these are good guys. This is a good institution. These are folks that we've trusted. And if they're telling me that, you know, this is all okay, then I should just believe it. And uh, I've said this before, but when I finally got clarity over this was you described some of your heroes is I just started putting a bag over everybody's face and just looking at what they said, what they wrote and saying, this is crazy. This does not comport with what the Bible teaches us and the way we ought to go. And then you pull the bag up and you think, whoa, wait a minute, you? And for whatever reason, it's created what Vody's called in his book, Fault Lines. So we find ourselves on different sides of this issue and I don't know a way to get together on this. I, I think we're going to have to acknowledge that we really are standing on different ground. And um, that's heartbreaking to me, but I don't see a way forward without repentance and forgiveness and, and recognizing, no, this is what the Word says, and this is what the Word requires of how we are to live together. So in, in light of that, I mean, what, what hope do you have? What do you want to see happen? What, what do you think? You know, if you could write the script, and I know God's God, He raises people from the dead, but just practically speaking, from where you're sitting, what would you love to see happen in the evangelical world or the SBC in particular? Well, I don't think I have a a great answer to that. My writing has been focused on trying to uh, trying to make sense of what has happened. Mm -hmm. 
and try to help others uh, understand it, or if my ideas are not right, uh, help me to understand it uh, better as, as I go along. Um, one of the regrets that I have is that um, we didn't get to see what it might be like if voices that uh, are not from blue communities had not been canceled. Mm-hmm. Would it have been possible to have to continue to have Tabidi uh, Anabwile uh, and Vodi talk about race? I don't know the answer to that. But what I do know is that the people with the levers in their hand decided Vodi had to go. Yeah. Uh, what would it have been like if you had one person saying that uh, conservatives who vote Republican are lapsing into idolatry, uh, and then another person there, white, black, or whatever, saying it's not idolatry, and here are the eight reasons why, and have to answer that. We didn't get a chance to see that. I don't know what it would have been like, mm-hmm. but what has what has we've ended up in a place in which it turns out that. These issues really do matter a great deal to people on both sides. Right. And so uh, the other side is trying to pretend like they either don't or they're gospel issues. And so therefore, we're, we're, the, the theology that we said would be sufficient to bond us is not really bonding us, but they're not really saying that straight out. But I think what we certainly need to do, the, the part I want to play is to try to, as I try to understand it myself, is to bring some others along with me to try to, try to understand it and hopefully learn lessons so that going forward we can be more protective of, of the gospel than we have been so far. Yeah, I think that's a great uh, way to put it. And one of the things that has happened that I think just underscores the legitimacy of your assessments you've given us today is what we've witnessed when Vody Balkum said that he had been asked to consider having his name put in as a nominee for the president of the SBC. I mean, that's all that he said about it. And the overwhelming uh, vitriol that came against him from quarters that say we prize racial diversity, we need to to step down from places of leadership where whites have, have occupied those seats and let those people of color occupy those seats. They just piled on him, which underscores the fact this is not really about race. This is about ideology. That's right. They don't they don't want a, a black person. They want a black person who speaks and thinks the way that they think they ought to speak and think, yes. which is just an, a horrible form of bigotry. If I use my imagination, I think I could imagine a world in which America is a place where progressives just feel they can't share their views and they self-censor. And when they go to the university or the school, they just feel like they really can't say what they really mean. But I would have to use my imagination because that America doesn't exist. And so I've been uh, teaching for over 30 years in higher education. And there are black conservatives out there. And they find me. And they bear their hearts to me. And they tell me, these are my views. And I don't share them with hardly anyone, black or white. Mm -hmm. Because I'll be rejected as a sellout. Right. among the African-American community, or as an Uncle Tom among the whites. And they're from all walks of life, and the sharper ones understand 
that white men at the top of these institutions are using the kind of black voices that will protect them in the environment we're in, mm. maybe not utterly, but they'll provide the best protection for them being charged with racism. Mm. And so, uh, so much of this, I'm afraid, is about protectiveness, really from, from a kind of a business person's point of view, a protector of uh, institutions and assets of, of white men, and the use of blacks. And, of course, that's what Shelby Steele and Thomas uh, right. Sowell have written of so eloquently. Right that uh, this is a battle among whites who are using blacks. Mm. And I can't think of a better way to move to a different future than to be led by Vody Balkum into a new future. That would be different. Yeah, that would be very different. Well, Mark, thanks for this conversation, man. It's been wonderful. I uh, look forward to seeing more of the development of this book project. I think the book is going to be so, so helpful. And uh, pray for Mark as you think of him and think about this book that he's putting together. Uh, we look forward to getting it in print as soon as we can and making it available to you. It will help to assess what's been going on and to think rightly and biblically about where we are and, by God's grace, where we need to go and we'll be able to go. So, Mark, thanks a lot.